Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Who is John Flynn, and why should we know about him? I'll talk about John Flynn on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show, of course, by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. But also, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. And you can throw a few pennies my way. Or you can go to YouTube, click on the little super thanks button under the video. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. Or you can go to uh, Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe there. All those are great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Leave it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Also, comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me those show requests if you want to hear something in particular. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic, and that is John T. Flynn. You may not have heard of John T. Flynn before. And there are a lot of people out there who have written uh, in the last, say, century that are kind of unknown. And uh, this piece by Ryan Walters at Chronicles Magazine does a nice job of uh, bringing out who John T. Flynn was and why you should pay attention to him. Now, I relied pretty heavily on John Flynn in my chapter on Franklin Roosevelt for nine presidents who screwed up America. He was a very good critic of the New Deal and, of course, the Roosevelt administration. Uh, he at one time was a member of the left, and there were a lot of people like that. You know, Richard Weaver, for example, who was a great uh, conservative voice, was also a leftist at one time. But there were a lot of people who moved from the left to the right, and they always had this different kind of spirit to them. They're, they're much more politically aggressive because they understood the power of collective politics. They, they understood how to use politics to their advantage. I think a lot of times... Uh, conservatives are simply just that. They're conservatives. They want to just be left alone, and they don't really want to go out and do the dirty work of getting involved in the trenches and the muck and the mire of politics. And look, anyone that goes out and does that uh, is uh, someone that wants to run for office or organize political movements and these kind of things. They're a different kind of person because of the attacks you're going to face and the things that are going to happen as you, uh, as you make waves. It doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. That's what's going to happen. So a lot of these people, of course, are attention seekers, but Flynn was simply a polemicist. He was just a writer. Uh, he, he was someone who was interested in exposing, in his mind, what the truth of the seedy underside of the left was in the 1930s and 40s. And so when you're trying to be a historian and you're writing about these things and you're looking for dissident voices, particularly in the middle of the 20th century, John T. Flynn is someone who you should go to. Now, 
Flynn's works, uh, many of them are available online uh, free of charge. I think Mises.org has several of them in their online library. He's often kind of seen as a, you know, maybe a liber little libertarian in some ways, paleo-libertarian. Uh, sometimes he's called a member of the alt-right, but he, some of his material is available on Mises.org. So you can go read it free of charge, and it's, it's, again, invaluable stuff. In fact, when I was writing that chapter on Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, I talked about at one point where, according to rumors, the Congress passed a rolled-up newspaper because they didn't have the legislation in hand to pass. And that came from John T. Flynn. Uh, he knew what was going on. Uh, so they were, they were passing bills without actually having the bill because they were getting it. It was cascading down from uh, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue, and they were just passing whatever they could. They would you know, pass the bill so you know what's in the bill kind of thing. This is not a new phenomenon in Congress where Nancy Pelosi says, well, if in order to read it, we got to pass it first. That was happening during the New Deal. And uh, this is what the left has done because it doesn't really matter what's in it. They just want to say they did something. And of course, any time you can pass a bill and increase government power, spending, whatever it is, they're going to do it. So this is a great piece by Ryan Walters on John T. Flynn. The, the title is Remembering John T. Flynn, Icon of the Old Right. Now, uh, Ryan Walters has written a really good book on Warren Harding. He also has a good book on Grover Cleveland. Um, he is, you know, late 19th uh, century, 20th century historian. Um, so if you want to go out and get uh, his book on Harding, I highly recommend it. He also wrote a good book on Apollo 1. He's, he's uh, interested in the space program. And he has some other things, apparently, there in the works, too. Uh, so go on out and get Ryan Walters' stuff. You won't be disappointed. So he says, He has been labeled an exemplar of the old right, a prophet, a master polemicist, a passionate spokesman for the extreme right wing, a muckraking investigative journalist, and later by a U.S. president he once supported, a destructive rather than a constructive force who should be barred from further writing. Though once characterized as a New Deal liberal who wrote for the New Republic, John T. Flynn eventually became an icon of the old right. Now, the one there, the muckraking investigative journalist, that's good stuff, right? I mean, journalism, whether you're on the right or the left, the job of journalism should be to expose the hypocrisy and lies of those in power. And, you know, muckrakers often focused on business, enterprises, you know, people that had money. And we still have that, right? And we still get that. But we don't often see people as much going out and doing real investigative journalism for members of Congress or state houses, the president. When you try, you're often called a, a partisan. If the party in power doesn't want it, they smear you. So this is stuff that really needs to be done. And we're seeing the fruits of that as some of this stuff has happened recently with things like the Twitter files and, and other investigative journalism that is exposing uh, the corruption and things like you know power that's shared between government and, and private companies. I mean, there's a name for that, and, and uh, we used to call that fascism, right? When when government and private enterprise get together and seek see, uh, seek power. I mean, that's what that was in the 1930s with the Nazi regime. I mean, this is what they were doing. So the Soviets did it as well, but there weren't any private enterprises there. But controlling the narrative through government activity into the private sector. Uh, the United States did this is too during World War One. The Committee of Public Information. I mean, th this stuff isn't new, but for some reason we overlook that now. If it's done on the left, in particular, there's, there's no problem there. That's they're just doing the right thing. If they're still on the right, then that's bad stuff. It's it's bad either way. 
So, I mean, that's something that people have to understand. So he says, born in Maryland in 1882, John Thomas Flynn was raised and educated an ardent Catholic. He originally studied law at Georgetown, but soon moved into the field of journalism, specializing in finance and economics. He got his first job with the New York Globe, writing on fraud in the markets and his belief that the government had a role to play in the economy, acting more like a referee than a participant, making sure the playing field was fair and honest while, com while competition was maintained. Flynn believed that government should function in such a manner because it represented all the people, not just a chosen few. For Flynn, at least in the early stages of his life, it was Wall Street and the investment trusts that were the real enemy. Now, again, what's fascinating about this, you could say this is a very Jeffersonian progression for Flynn. The Jeffersonians would have issues with Wall Street, investment bankers. They would have a problem with all of these things because they would be uh, in, in many cases, even in, the, in this period of time, the early uh, 20th century, there would be, uh, by the teens, some kind of influence from the general government. I mean, that would be happening. Right? The Federal Reserve eventually was not you know, an independent entity. It says it is, but it's really not. And so you have this fusion of government and capital that's created. They're, they are promoting it incessantly. They're not regulating it as much at this point in time. That would, there is some regulation, but a lot of that would come when the Southerners would take power in, uh, in the Wilson administration, in the Congress. So Southerners at that point would see it as a way, as a vehicle, this big government as a vehicle to regulate the thing that they hated the most. And that was this fusion of government and banking and finance capital. That's very Jeffersonian. We, we don't often think about this, but that's what these people were doing. Now we can say there's some, maybe it's short-sighted, there are some things that are going to happen with that, but this distrust of central banking, of uh, finance capital and government fusion is something that's very Jeffersonian. John Taylor of Caroline, Thomas Jefferson, you could go down the list of people that were against it in the early 19th century. So Walter says, in addition to writing for the Globe, Flynn wrote pieces for Collier's Weekly and Harper's Magazine, two famous muckraking publications, and began to write books as well. His early financial volumes included Investment Trust Gone Wrong, Graft in Business, and a biography of John D. Rockefeller called God's Gold. When the Great Depression hit in 1929, President Herbert Hoover, in contrast to his predecessors Harding and Coolidge, used the government to fight the downturn, raising tariffs and taxes and creating new programs like the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. But Flynn attacked that entity, writing that it was, quote, borrowing money from the banks and appropriating to other government bureaus. Of course, this practice brings to an end the power of the purse by which parliaments and free democracies control executives. And so you find these bureaus supplying one another with money as part of this new system of eliminating Congress from its historic role of controlling the purse strings. And this is a very Jeffersonian critique of, of Herbert Hoover. I mean, this, these kind of things were happening. And so oftentimes, again, in, in modern you know, political discourse, we look at R or D. We say R is good, D is bad, or D is good, R is bad. But what's happening here, of course, in the late 1920s into the Great Depression is you're starting to see a much stronger fusion of government and finance. You're seeing a stronger, uh, a stronger executive branch begin to develop. And, of course, we're going to see that with Roosevelt even more. And so Flynn is, cr is criticizing this kind of stuff, uh, which was, again, very Jeffersonian. It's a very Jeffersonian critique of the Hoover administration. He says, in 1932, Flynn supported Franklin D. Roosevelt enthusiastically and soon began a weekly column for the New Republic called Are There People's Money? 
Early on, he supported what Roosevelt was doing, especially his call for a national bank holiday. The government should look into banking practices and how securities were manipulated, he believed, in order to clean up and reform the worst aspects of capitalism. Elimination of excess profits with a federal income tax, specifically on those profits and a tax on employers to finance the Social Security system as well. Then he wrote the administration should craft, quote, a plan to produce income by producing work, to produce work by launching great public and private construction enterprises that will yield wages to those on jobs and in the material factories. So again, at this point, he's a new dealer. Uh, This is very Keynesian in terms of economics. We're going to stimulate the economy with business. Uh, with with the government business, and uh, that's going to be a way to save uh, the United States during this Great Depression. And there were a lot of people that believed this in the 1920s and 30s. Look, I mean, some of the most popular ideologies were capitalism. You had people that were fascists in the 30s. I mean, there was certainly an interest in government control. There's actually a pretty good uh, book on uh, the different types of New Deals uh, in the in the West. Not looking at the Soviet Union, the five-year plans, but of Nazi Germany, uh, fascist Italy, and the United States. In fact, what you could say during this time is you were seeing a much more uh, you know, fascist kind of government in the United States than communists, even though there were communists all around. Uh, but the, the uh, author of the book is Chivalbush, and the title of the book is Three New Deals. You should go out and look at that. It's really interesting in how these different new deals, whether it's in Germany, Italy, or the United States, mirrored each other. Um, and how, of course, all of these men, but particularly the two fascists, uh, didn't think Roosevelt was doing a bad job. And Roosevelt didn't think that Mussolini or Hitler were doing a bad job in their own countries and trying to save their economies from this economic downturn. But they're using the state in a way that we would eventually call fascism. And even they themselves would call fascism, fascism if you're in Italy uh, or national socialism if you're in Germany. Walter says, but it didn't take Flynn long to become disillusioned. FDR had attacked Hoover as having presided over the greatest spending administration in peace times in all our history. But then after the famed 100 days, Roosevelt had accumulated a larger deficit than Hoover had amassed in two years. The government should not rely on borrowing for funds, Flynn believed, but on new tax receipts. So again, borrowing instead of taxing more. But Hoover was taxing more, and of course borrowing too, so... Flynn is a little inconsistent. He's not, I mean, he's an inconsistent person when it comes to his economic policies. But regardless, he becomes disillusioned with Roosevelt and begins blasting the Roosevelt administration. Flynn also believed that one of the worst aspects of the New Deal was the National Recovery Administration. The NRA was one of the most amazing spectacles of our times, he wrote, one that represented probably the gravest attack upon the whole principle of of the democratic society in our political history. His main complaint was that the trade associations would set prices, wages, hours, and production quotas, thereby thereby placing the country on the road to a kind of guild fascism. Well, this is exactly right. I mean, that's that's what he thought was happening. We were moving into a fascist-type economy. And uh, I don't think there's any any dispute of that. The people that run around praising Franklin Roosevelt are, are, by default, accepting a situation that they probably would have praised Mussolini or Hitler at the same time, who were doing the same things. We need to be consistent and clear in what was happening in both of these, in all three of these places. And of course, then you've got the five-year plan people in the Soviet Union. But what you had in the 1930s were ardent proponents of centralized economies. It didn't matter if they're on the left or the right, that's what they're doing. And that was the popular ideologies of the day. 
I say the new deal, this new deal is fake, Flynn stated in a radio address in December 1933. It has been sold to our people as a great liberal revolution. That is a fraud. It is nothing else than the scheme which the Chamber of Commerce of the United States has been fighting for 12 years. The modification of the Sherman Antitrust Law and turning over the control of the industry to the tender mercy of the trade associations. Employers are compelled to combine, but laborers are not. Flynn later penned a book, The Road Ahead, that portrayed the New Deal as a first step to tyranny. In a 1940 book, critical of FDR, Country Squire in the White House, Flynn lambasted the president for following a path already traveled by fascists in Europe. Quote, while at the same time proclaiming his devotion to democracy, FDR adopted a plan borrowed from the corporate state of Italy and sold it to all the liberals as a great liberal revolutionary triumph. Again, read the Chivalbush book, because this is what he does. I mean, he explains these new deals and how they're very similar in the two fascist countries and the United States, and what can be the conclusion from that. Now, again, Roosevelt also had communists in his administration. So he's dabbling in both, really. I mean, Roosevelt's a, an interesting character and highly destructive to the presidency, to American government. I mean, he is one of the great villains in American history. And curiously, every American liberal who fought Monopoly, who had demanded the enforcement of the antitrust laws, who had denied the right of organized business groups, combinations, and trade associations to rule our economic life, was branded as a Tory and a reactionary if he continued to believe these things. In Flynn's view, Roosevelt had adopted a corporatist policy that served the desires of the corporate world, and he had spent tons of money on it, but it was not working. As the Depression dragged on, Flynn accurately predicted Roosevelt's next move, using war, or what Flynn called the war scare, to move the country forward. As the late anti-war author Justin Raimondo wrote, World War II would be the ultimate New Deal jobs program. Well, this is 100% correct. Uh, this is what, of course, after the fact. But in 1948, it's, it's what Orwell was talking about in 1984. But you use war as a vehicle to get what you want. Of course, Wilson did the exact same thing in World War I. If you can't get it uh, through uh, the regular means, well, then you create a war environment and you get it that way. The United States didn't have to be involved in World War I at all. Never had to join. World War II, uh, with the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was no choice. But, of course, people like Charles Lindbergh and the America First Committee were saying, we need to stay out of Europe. We don't need to be involved. It's going to be a disaster. So Walter says, war promotion would also help Roosevelt with conservatives in Congress who were antagonistic to the New Deal and suspicious of centralization in general, but it would support national defense spending in preparation for war. If conservative objectors to deficits do not like WPA, Flynn wrote in the New Republic column, very well, FDR will give them what they like, battleships, armies. He will create an industry for them, the armament industry. And this is where Flynn really made his mark and became an icon for the old right. Foreign Affairs, a newly formed welfare warfare state. This is 100% correct. This is what happened, right? So you get guns and butter. World War II is guns and butter. We still have the New Deal, and the New Deal programs are still in effect, but we now have the guns to go along with it, and Lyndon Johnson did it better in terms of more money, but this is where you start with guns and butter. In fact, Lyndon Johnson was simply just basing his programs off of what Will, uh, Roosevelt did in World War II. And Roosevelt was basing his programs off of what Wilson did in World War I. But Roosevelt consolidated power in a way that Wilson could not. And of course, that is a turning point in American presidential history. Writing in one of his greatest works, As We Go Marching, Flynn not only exposed what Roosevelt was up to, but also described the current American state 
with regard to corporatism and militarism. Quote, These two stubborn forces will always force a government like ours to find a project for spending which meets these two conditions. It must be a strictly federal project, and it must be one upon which the conservative and taxpaying elements will be willing to see money spent. The one great federal project which meets these requirements is the Army and Navy for national defense. Again, look at what happens when conservatives talk about cutting spending. One area they never talk about cutting is the military. They talk about cutting all the social programs. On the other side, the left never talks about cutting social programs. So what we have, uh, and, and of course the left will spend money on the military when they think it suits them. And right now they're willing to spend money because of Ukraine. But uh, what we have, of course, then are two groups that will never cut any spending. It doesn't matter who's in power, you're going to get more spending. We don't really have fiscal conservatives anymore that are willing to look at trying to rein in spending so that we don't have inflation, higher taxes, these kind of things. To accomplish this military-industrial arrangement, the president would have to whip up hysteria. The New Republic Flynn accused FDR of deliberately selling to our people the baleful notion that some enemy is about to assail us. Again, it's the two minutes of hate. Think about what's happening now. And this happens with conservative pundits. I was just listening uh, the other day to, as I was riding home, the radio was on. I had it on talk radio. And Sean Hannity was, Hannity was on there. And he's talking about the axis of evil. We have a new axis of evil. There's, new, there's always a new enemy. Always. And that new enemy is there to disrupt your life and make your life terrible. And so we have to do something about it. Whether it's uh, you know, Russia, whether it's China, whether it's uh, the Soviet Union at one point, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, uh, Imperial Japan, whatever it is, we have to come up with an enemy that deserves our attention. Whether it's the North Korea, whether it's uh, you know Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, Iran, it doesn't matter. There has to be an enemy out there to force our attention to spend on military gear. Because that's how we keep conservatives happy. You spend money on military gear and they don't care. You spend it on social welfare programs and they care. For the left, what they then do is just attack uh, the military spending, but then want to take the same exact money and pump it into soda. We're going to spend the money, spend it on this. Early incidents like the sinking of the Panay in 1937 would be used to incite emotion among the people, who would then willingly support an arms buildup. This would thrust forward into the solution to our domestic problems, foreign quarrels, which, with which we should have nothing to do, Flynn wrote to Senator William Borah. Nevertheless, FDR's plan worked. As historian Ronald Radish has written, the once-hated New Deal was now backed by business-minded conservatives who saw an answer to their problems in war production. I dare say no one can stop it, Flynn noted of the new war production policy. The Democrats have come around for it, and the Republicans have always been for it. The liberals favor it, the radicals favor it, business favors it, the idealists favor it, hence we shall have it. But Flynn did not take matters lying down. He helped form the America First Committee and served as chairman of the New York City chapter. Such activities, though, came at a price. As the New Republic dropped his column, while Roosevelt himself assailed Flynn in a private letter to the editor of the Yale Review. Others in Flynn's camp, like Garrett Garrett and Oswald Garrison Villard, were similarly blacklisted. Flynn wrote about the threats he and others faced, even former from uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI and the smear terror. Again, these things aren't new. What the United States government is doing today, and this is where I said this before, what the United States government is doing today with the deep state, and this is what it's designed for, whether it's the FBI, the CIA, the IRS, the Justice Department, whatever it is, the party in power, this is what it's designed to do, to, to create an environment where their political enemies can be attacked. That's what it's there for. It's not there for anything else. And that's what it's always been used for. 
When war finally came with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Flynn didn't join the war party, far from it. He continued to assault Roosevelt in two small booklets, The Truth About Pearl Harbor and The Final Secret of Pearl Harbor, in which he alleged that the United States provoked the Japanese into an attack. And in 1948, he penned a full analysis of FDR, The Roosevelt Myth, which is the book that's just absolutely ex- excellent. Um, and this is what I used uh, for the chapter on Roosevelt and Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America for some of the material. The war certainly seemed to complete Flynn's transformation to the old right. As Murray Rothbard wrote in his book, The Betrayal of the American Right, quote, The drive of the New Deal toward war once again reshuffled the ideological spectrum in the meaning of left and right in American politics. Many who had started as liberals like Flynn moved rightward, especially as Rothbard put it, under the hammer blows of the left liberal establishment, a process by which the forging of the old right was completed. Flynn was truly a political prophet, Walter says, forecasting the future for the United States, and his predictions were chillingly accurate. During the Cold War, Flynn stated that it was not necessary to go to war against global communism because all America had to do was sit tight and put their faith in the immutable laws of human nature. In other words, the U.S. needed to make an end of the Cold War because communism would once one day fall on its own. Of course, the warfare state was too much too powerful during the Cold War to simply work toward an absence of conflict. There was fighting in the Korean Peninsula in the 1950s, just five years after the end of World War II. And soon after that, police action had concluded, Flynn predicted the next American war, French Indochina, as an American military mission is on its way to that country. He warned his radio audience, if we are prepared to make war to save Asia from dictatorships, we will waste every dollar, every pound of steel, and every precious life that is snuffed out in that foolish adventure. And he was right about that. I mean, this is what happened. So... Uh, Flynn was very good on foreign policy. Fighting communism was a waste of time, he wrote, and as we go marching in 1944, because the real threat was fascism at home, which would indeed come to America, he predicted in a frighteningly accurate vision, at the hands of perfectly authentic Americans. This is a quote from Flynn. Again, this is why you should pay attention to John T. Flynn. Quote, You are convinced that the present economic system is washed up and you wish to commit this country to the rule of the bureaucratic state, interfering in the affairs of the states and cities, taking part in the management of industry and finance and agriculture, assuming the role of great national banker and investor, borrowing billions every year and spending them on all sorts of projects through which such a government can paralyze opposition and command public support, marshalling great armies and navies at crushing costs to support the industry of war and preparation for war, which will become our greatest industry. And adding to all this the most romantic adventures in global planning, regeneration, and domination all to be done under the authority of a powerfully centralized government in which the executive will hold in effect all the powers, with Congress reduced to the role of a debating society. There is your fascist. And the sooner America realizes this dreadful fact, the sooner it will arm itself to make an end of American fascism masquerading under the guise of the champion of democracy. Walters is right. I mean, that is, that is an accurate description of what we're seeing in, in Washington, D.C. today. That's it. This is what we have. And it doesn't matter if it's on the left or the right. This is what we have in D.C. And Flynn was entirely prescient and, uh, and spot on with this. In 1960, John T. Flynn called it quits, laying down his pen and retiring from public life as his health began to slip. After an illness, he died in 1964 at the age of 81. Though his work has largely been forgotten, erased by the establishment powers he opposed, his legacy as an icon of the old right should be secure forever. And again, because... A lot of people don't know about John T. Flynn, and a quote like that, I mean, these are people that Americans should be reading because they predicted what we're seeing in D.C. and what it is. 
But of course, when you're just talking about the spoils and power and everything else that comes with it, then most people that go into politics are not going to be opposed to this kind of thing. They just want the power to control. The whole idea of politics is about power. And when we forget that, we make mistakes in how we address politics in America. It still is about power. It's always been about power and what you can do with it. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.